Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back to the show. This is Cassandra Quaid, your host of Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today on the show, we're going to take an evolutionary perspective on gastronomy. We're joined by guest Jonathan Silvertown, who is a professor of evolutionary ecology and the chair of technology enhanced science education in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Jonathan is an ecologist and evolutionary biologist with a research specialty in plant population biology. He's the author of a number of highly cited publications in the field of plant population biology and citizen science. And he also has eight books, mainly in popular science. The book that we'll be discussing today, Dinner with Darwin, Food, Drink, and Evolution, has been translated into nine languages. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jonathan. It's nice to meet you. A real pleasure. Great. Well, why don't we just start with a little bit of background. What led you to write a book about gastronomy from this evolutionary perspective? Well, uh, I've always been interested in food, like uh, so many people, everybody on this, uh, watching this, no doubt. Um, and I, as an evolutionary biologist, took for granted that everything we eat evolved. And one day it dawned on me that this wasn't something that most people carried around in their heads. Um, and that actually there's a fascinating story there that was not told. Uh, and I enjoy writing popular science books that give people a new perspective on something that's familiar. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I thought this was an interesting challenge. And I set out to see what I could make of, of this topic. So as you said, I'm, I'm uh, not an expert, or at least before I wrote this book, I wasn't an expert in this subject, but I had wide interests with lots of uh, appropriate uh, evolutionary background. Um, and so that's, I, I think it's fair to say this is the first time, the first book that's actually taken a complete view of different aspects of food, diet, and so on from an evolutionary point of view. So it kind of you know, introduces a, a, a panorama of the topic. That's great. Well, let's, let's start back with some basics, um, maybe with the concept of natural selection. Mm -hmm. And how does this concept of natural selection apply to the foods that we eat? Okay, so the first thing to say is that everything we eat has wild ancestors, right? Mm -hmm. So the natural selection uh, occurred in the wild state. So take wheat, for example. Um, it has a couple of wild ancestors, uh, bread wheat. Um, mm -hmm. And that uh, the natural uh, home of um, the ancestral wheats for, for, for that make our bread uh, is in uh, the, in Southwest Asia. So Anatolia, uh, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, that sort of arc called the Fertile Crescent. And that's a fairly arid area. And so these plants were adapted to growing in only part of the year. Uh, and they're annuals, okay, mm -hmm. meaning that they they complete their life cycle inside 12 months. Um, and this is this is why, of course, farmers have to re-sow re cereals every year. Um, uh, and ancestrally, from an evolutionary point of view, that goes back to the arid conditions in which uh, these plants evolved, uh, where that is a, a favor a favored strategy. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one way. But there are just so many others. Um, Everything has evolved, 
we, I mean, the most astounding fact about evolution is that we all have a single ancestor, ultimately. There was a single origin of, of life on Earth today. Um, so we are distantly related to our food. Uh, we're not eating our relatives in, in any meaningful sense. But, um, you know, that's why we uh, all have the same DNA uh, code and, uh, and so on. So um, there's, there's an amazing story there. And in fact, the difficulty in, t in writing a book of this sort is deciding what to leave out, really. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, going back to that example of wheat, um, you're, you have a chapter in the book on, on bread. And mm. what, what can we learn from bread? And how does that teach us about domestication of crops? Well, okay, so the process of domestication, let me just uh, say what that is. Mm -hmm. That's basically the, the process of taking um, a wild uh, original and shaping it for human needs so that it can uh, succeed for us in, 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 in what you might just call an agricultural context. Mm -hmm. um, so in, I mean, there, there, and this, this process of domestication has happened in at least 26 different parts of the world for a whole group of different crops in each area. And in many of those same places, there have also been a domestication of animals. Uh, and the one that most people will have heard about is the Fertile Crescent I already mentioned, where we, uh, uh, where uh, pigs, goats, sheep, cattle, uh, oats, lentils, peas, wheat, barley, I mean, you know, the, the staples of our of our diet actually all were domesticated there from wild relatives. Um, so, okay, so that the process of domestication is basically a gradual one, as far as we understand it. I mean, it happened first in Southwest Asia, somewhere between about twenty thousand and twelve thousand years ago, and um, the most recent archaeological evidence suggests that it, it was a gradual process. And that before people started, if you like, sowing crops, harvesting them and re-sowing some of the seed, what they were actually doing was gathering these same plants in the wild. Mm. Um, and what we know happens when you uh, when plants begin to become domesticated is their seeds are selected to be bigger. Um, so this is almost certainly uh, the result of human selection. It may be inadvertent. You just take you have a handful of seeds and you 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 re-sow the biggest ones. Mm -hmm. And there are some genes for seed size. And so what you're doing is artificially selecting, in a sense, um, copying the process of natural selection, but giving it a hand and pushing it in the direction that you want. Um, and so this is how wolves became dogs. This is how uh, you know wild aurochs became domesticated cattle, how wild sheep became um, tame and domesticated, uh, and the same applies to bread wheat and any number of other things. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So I guess one of the one of the challenges of of, stud, of research in the field of evolutionary biology is just the the scale of time that you really have to think about. What can you tell us about that? Like, what are some of the sources of evidence that we have for evolution of our crops? Evolution of our crops. So, um, or the crop crops, systems, yes, that's know. actually, yeah. in, 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 okay, so we, we need to kind of re readjust our, our perspective on time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, we live 80, 90 years, maybe, if we're lucky. So, um, you know, 100 years seems quite a long time to us, right? Um, 
but actually, if we're talking about the evolution of crops, we're looking at 6,000 years perhaps for for maize, you know, corn on the cob, um, uh, 12,000 years for wheat uh, and barley. Um, so that kind of time scale. And actually, that is also not very long compared to the human evolution. So the human species we're looking at originating somewhere around 200,000 years ago in its modern form. Um, uh, and so when you can go back and back. But so there are different things that happen to our diet at different points. Uh, we can talk certainly about about um, domestication and what happened in the last, shall we say, 12,000 years. But before that, we evolved a liking for meat uh, because we are great apes. Basically, our nearest relatives are, are chimps, gorillas and uh, the other great apes. And largely they're vegetarian. In the case of gorillas, they're entirely vegetarian. You do even call them vegan if, if you know, you wanted to uh, use uh, that kind of term. Um, so there's something really interesting that happened there. And that must have happened something like six million years ago, maybe six, seven million years ago. Um, highly speculative. I can talk about where the evidence comes from and so on. Then cooking. I mean, all our food is cooked, essentially. I mean, um, well, not quite all of it, but we can't do without it. OK, um, we can discuss why in a moment, but um, mm -hmm. that is a fact. And we don't know when cooking started, but it's probably a couple of million years ago, 1.8 to 2 million years ago. Uh, and now we're getting nearer the present, but you can see some really fundamental things happened long before we got to domestication. So before okay. it made any sense to domesticate sheep, you had to develop a liking for meat and you would have, you know, humans would have would have been hunting sheep and, and, or, 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 uh, and so on. Um, uh, and then we come to domestication. So sorry, I've lost track of what you wanted me to say yeah. about that. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess so domestication is a much more recent um, thing it that's is. occurred. That's and, yeah. and I guess, could you walk us through what are the strategies to domestication? We can, I, it's a bit different perhaps for animals and for plants. We can start with either one, but um, how does that process work over time? Okay, so um, as far as we know, it was gradual and probably semi semi-accidental. I mean, um, I mean, we can't know what people's intentions were. What we do know is that there's a thing called the domestication syndrome, and this, there's one for plants, and there's one for animals. But what's interesting is it's in common. Most plants do one set of things as they become domesticated. Animals, despite being quite unrelated to each other, you know, dogs, sheep, very, mm -hmm. uh, you know, ones of carnivores and herbivores, quite separate uh, mammalian lineages. But the same things happen to them during domestication. So I'll, I'll, I can come to that in a moment. But uh, what happens in plants is a set of things. Um, they tend to lose dormancy. So most plant seeds are dormant uh, during a part of the year. You can water them you give them nice conditions. If it's not the right time of year, if they're not going through the right uh, temperature regime, this kind of thing, they mm -hmm. won't germinate. OK, mm -hmm. so all that gets lost. Um, seed size increases hugely, um, you know, a hundredfold easily. Um, the number of seeds on the stem tends to go up. And a key thing is that the seeds don't fall off the plant. So um, uh, you can imagine if a farmer goes to the field to harvest the wheat and all the seeds have fallen to the ground and they're being eaten yeah. by mice. You know, it just doesn't work. So. Um, a key thing that people that 
archaeologists look for in the uh, archaeological record, the, 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 the paleontological record for the period when plants were beginning to be domesticated is whether at the point where the seed joins the, the, the stem, it broke cleanly, which is what happens in nature. Nature, mm -hmm. in nature, plants uh, have evolved to disperse their seeds. It's what mm -hmm. seeds are for, for sending your offspring out into the world. So you you let go of them, if you like. Um, and there's a thing called an obsessional layer, and it, 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 it kind of makes the seed fall off. It, um, that doesn't happen once domestication started to kick in. And mm. what happens is that, you know, the, the, the whole um, branch with the, with, the, with, the, with the seeds on is gathered as a sheaf. You know, you imagine sheaves of wheat, uh, a classic symbol of, of agriculture, and that's then taken uh, to the farmyard and then it's threshed. And the threshing uh, removes the seeds from the plant. And so using, um, you know, basically looking down the microscope and telling whether something has been uh, broken off cleanly or, or in, like a wild plant, or it's been broken by mechanical threshing, mm. is a very good clue as, as to whether uh, this is a domesticated plant or not. And what you find is there's a gradual change over a thousand, two thousand years in, for example, wheat and barley, things like that. Um, some crops seem to have become domesticated by accident. Um, so there's a fascinating story of rye. And mm. rye appears to have been a weed in wheat crops uh, that was basically took over as a crop in places where wheat didn't grow very well. And rye was a weed and then it, it was gradually domesticated into a into a um, into a crop um then it was you know in recent times it was introduced into california to grow for you know uh, people who came from eastern europe like rye bread um mm -hmm. so people started growing rye farmers started growing rye for uh this new market um uh, in the us i think around 1900 i guess um and then the market kind of went away and people started saying, oh, I don't like rye bread anymore. You know, grandpa <laughs> did, but I don't anymore. And the trouble was that the rye then reverted to becoming a weed. So it turned, it turned, so it, it, the, the story of rye is it started off as a, as a weed in wheat. It then became a crop. It was then carried to the United States, Western US. Um, it was then no longer grown as a crop and it reverted to being a weed. Um, so that's what evolution can do. That's amazing. It's amazing. Well, and when I think about other factors that we observe in domesticated crops, some of the things that immediately come to mind are also the size of our crops. So whereas the wild progenitors might be much smaller, a great example of this would be maize and, and it's, you know, um, tea saints oh, and how tiny it was. Can you can you tell us yes. a bit about about that story? Sure. So, so, so the original uh, maize plant was a thing called teosinte, and it produced uh, cobs. It's still it's still around um, mm -hmm. in the wild. Um, not much of it, but in, in Mexico, in the highlands of Mexico, and it was about the size of your little finger. Um, and now, of course, you know, a corn cob is like this. Um, <laughs> and uh, that process happened over thousands of years, um, and. I mean, what, what's interesting to, to, to think about is that all this was done by farmers who knew nothing about genetics. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, the gene was discovered about 1902, right? I mean, in the, in the sense that we understand it. And Mendel before that, 
it was he thought of the idea of a gene, but it was entirely uh, conceptual. It, you know, the idea that it might have a physical existence, just you know. So yeah. we've only understood genetics for about 120 years in any kind of detail. Um, but people have been breeding uh, artificially to produce most of what we eat um, for, like I said, you know, 12,000 years, at least in the case of corn, not quite so long, more like 6,000 years, and achieved extraordinary changes, extraordinary changes. Um, and if you think of the, uh, to set, step to one side away from crops for a moment, I mean, if you think of the variety of different dogs that there are, mm -hmm. um, and they're all wolves. I mean, Darwin thought that, um, he, he, he guessed that they'd evolved from wolves, but he thought that there were so many, dogs varied so much from one breed to another that there must have been at least four or five different wild species from which dogs had been bred. And it turns out it's, it, it almost certainly is just one. Wow. Uh, there may have been more than one domestication of the grey wolf, but um, mm -hmm. uh, it's probably just one. So, you know, I, I, whenever I see dogs, and I, I don't have a dog, but, you know, you see a little dachshund with its tiny little legs and you see these uh, <laughs> peacock. I mean, they're just, they're like different species, you know. Yeah. You didn't know anything about their breeding biology or their history, we would say they were different species. And, and, and nobody would argue with that. They obviously they are, mm -hmm. but they ain't. So um, that was one of the things that inspired Darwin to come up with natural selection. He, he um, wrote a very long book about domestication. Uh, um, and he was interested in all kinds of things, crops, uh, pigeons at the time mm -hmm. in Victorian England. Pigeon uh, breeding was was very popular. Gooseberries. Um, the aim of Victorian gooseberry breeders was to produce the biggest gooseberry they could. I mean, they're scarcely worth eating, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why it's you need to start on this project? Right? I have yeah, no yeah. idea. But I mean, Darwin had loads of different varieties growing in his garden, and he took part in this sort of uh, whole thing. Yeah. Well, well, here's here's another kind of broader question. Like, how did you get interested in, in evolutionary biology to pursue this as a career? We have a lot of, of students that follow this podcast, and I'm always interested in getting perspectives from different professors. on. Yeah, well, I, I guess, as always, it was an inspiring set of teachers. So at school, I had an inspiring biology teacher. Mm -hmm. And I remember developing by the time I was 16, a very strong sense of identity as a biologist. I was 16, I wasn't particularly knowledgeable, but, um, you know, it, it became almost a badge, you know, I'm a biologist. There was something, I, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, looking back on it, it's, it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but ultimately it's because there was an inspiring teacher. Um, he was demanding, you know, he wanted, he pushed, he pushed uh, his students. Um, then I went to the University of Sussex Mm -hmm. um, uh, great university to be at, um, but a fairly random choice, really. And I mean, you know, there are a lot of universities I could have gone to, I guess. Um, uh, but it just so happened there was a really uh, important figure in evolutionary biology at that time called John Maynard Smith, mm -hmm. uh, who was professor of biology there. He had founded the School of Biology in Sussex, which was a new university started in the 1960s. Um, and people would come from all over the world to see him and mm. they'd give seminars and it was just fascinating. I mean, all sorts of, you know, um, famous names in evolutionary biology of that period would just drop in to see him and they'd chat to, to 
the students and um so uh yeah and he was he was a very um interesting character and uh later on i went to do my phd also at sussex and so i um had sort of had more contact with him and the and, and, and the evolutionary biologist so although i was an ecologist Mm -hmm. uh, it was very much in an evolutionary context, and I've always had that um, that particular perspective on on what I do. That's great. That's great. Well, um, as I was going through your book, some of the other interesting um, chapters that really caught my attention were also around um, topics like um, indulgence and desserts, and what can we learn about our desire for desserts. Um, and indulgence of those. And you mentioned one dish in particular that I'd never heard of before until this past year when I've been watching way too much Netflix and <laughs> saw a British baking show and it's all about the baked Alaska. <laughs> what can you tell us about that dish and, and also the, the bigger perspective on indulgence? Well, I, I could tell you what it is, but I've never made it. I'm not even sure I've ever eaten it either. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting piece of physics is what it is really more than, a, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, but I'll come to that in a moment. So, I mean, why do we like desserts? Well, it's sugar, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's no big secret. It's sugar. And we have taste receptors on our tongue for sugar. Um, uh, it's something that in, um, shall we say, in, the hu in, 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 in our uh, history, our evolutionary history, sugar would have been very rare. I mean, you know, um, if you go into a forest, Mm -hmm. um, where will you find sugar? Well, you'll find it in, in bees' nests, uh, mm -hmm. defended by stinging bees. Um, you'll find it in um, fruit, uh, and you'll find it, uh, I guess, in flower nectar, if you, you know, can get that. But um, it's not very common. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, of course, it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic source of energy. It's an instant energy source. Um, so you can see why evolution would have equipped us with special sensors for that. Um, they not only sense sugar taken as sugar, but they also sense um, the breakdown product of starch, which is sugar. So mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the enzymes in our mouth, uh, amylase, uh, break down starch into sugar. Um, and that uh, is sensed by our senses of the tongue, and it, it warns the um, endocrine system there's a, there's, a, there's a heavy meal coming, better turn the insulin on, right? There's a whole mm -hmm. sort of physiological story there. Um, but that's why we have sugar receptors, dedicated sugar receptors, right? So we, we don't have, I don't know, dedicated receptors for most things, but there are six things that we have dedicated receptors for, you know, salt, sugar, um, bitter, various other things. Some of them yeah. are warning. Some of them are warning and saying, hey, this is this is, doesn't taste nice because it's poisonous or it might be mm -hmm. sugar. It's obviously quite the reverse. It's about this is really good. Have some more of that. Um, so now sugar is just you know, just so available. So I'm afraid, you know, our evolutionary history tells us we want more, uh, <laughs> uh, which isn't very good for us. Um, baked, Ala uh, baked Alaska. So um, essentially, it's a meringue. With 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 ice cream inside, mm -hmm. and I, I don't ask me how to, how to make it. Look it up on on, on YouTube <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Basically, a meringue is is uh, if you think about it, it's mostly air, right? It's uh -huh. air trapped inside sugar, so it's it's like a um, it, it it's 
polystyrene block. You know, it, 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 it's insulating. And somehow you get the ice cream inside. Don't ask me how. I guess you pipe it in or you take too hard. I don't know. Anyway, the, the, the principle is that you've got this insulator on the outside, which is the meringue, and you've got something very cold on the inside, which is uh, ice cream. And you can put that in the oven because the insulating bit will stop the ice cream from all melting, as long as you get the timing right. Um, <laughs> Uh, and um, a physicist, a uh, famous physicist called Curti, uh, who got re he, he, he was interested in molecular gastronomy before it was called molecular gastronomy. He was a, a physicist, a new, uh, I think it was a nuclear physicist, Nicholas Curti. He was at the University of Oxford. And um, he invented the inverse of the baked Alaska, which he called the frozen Hawaii. Um, <laughs> and uh, what he did with that was he took a frozen outside. So a baked Alaska is, is is sort of the insulator on the outside and the cold stuff on the inside. So he just reversed it and he he took um, uh, ice cream uh, ice cream ball and sort of cut it in half, hollowed it out, um, filled it with jam, <laughs> and then fused it again and put it in a microwave. And oh. so what microwaves do is they excite um, liquid uh, water molecules. Mm -hmm. So the frozen, the frozen outside doesn't melt. I mean, again, it's all about timing, but you know, you, you but the inside can get really hot uh, <laughs> because it's wow. liquid, liquid, liquid yeah. jam, liquid jelly, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you put that on somebody's plate and <laughs> <laughs> Better warn them, actually. <laughs> what, what they're about to encounter. They think this is this is ice cream, yeah. which is uh, inside is it's sort of boiling hot sugar. But anyway, <laughs> he thought that was quite funny. But um, yeah, so that's great. Well, this is what physicists get to, get up to in in, yeah. in the kitchen. Yeah, got physics, chemistry, biology, all of that's coming together in the kitchen. That's fantastic. Um, and so, uh, where can our listeners find out more about this book and others? Where can I send them um, to find uh, the book? Okay. Other... Well, yeah. uh, my my uh, website is jonathansilvertown.com. dot com. Mm -hmm. Very easy to find. You Google it, of course. Um, uh, it's published by Chicago University Press. The paperback is out earlier this year. I think it was late last year. Um, so you know, usual places. Enjoy. That's great. Well, and I have one last question before we go. Do you have any favorite recipes that have been inspired by your research in evolution? Well, um, February the 12th is Darwin's birthday. So a few mm -hmm. years ago, we had a, we had a, 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 a Darwin's birthday party. Uh, and we, we, we tried to have a few occasions, uh, a sort of birthday party in which I like to try and get people uh, to think about the, um, well, mainly I'm, I'm in favour of people enjoying themselves, right? So I don't think people learn well by being given lectures uh, that are too serious and intent all the time. We have to do it sometimes. Um, so, for example, we did, I mean, this wasn't a recipe, but, um, you know, we were talking earlier about domestication of crops. And what's fascinating is that um, a handful of crops produced a great deal of, a handful of wild plants produced a great variety of uh, of, of domesticated ones, so broccoli, mm -hmm. cauliflower, all the different kinds of cabbage, um, uh, kohlrabi with that 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 mm -hmm. stem, um, uh, and Brussels sprouts. I'm not sure how common Brussels sprouts are in the states. There are yeah, oh, we I love, love them. Hate, 
yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, they're, so, they're they're crispy. Um, they they're all they all have a common ancestor in wild cabbage, right? Mm -hmm. And what's happened is through artificial selection, uh, in the case of the Brussels sprouts, the, the lateral buds on the stem have been mm -hmm. expanded. In the case of cauliflower and broccoli to varying extents, the flower has, or the flower head has become mm -hmm. expanded. Um, and, you know, all the different things that you get out of a wild cabbage, and that's all happened in the last 2000 years. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how long it's taken, but certainly back 2000 years ago, you look at Roman cookbooks and they, they knew two or three kinds of cabbage. And that seems to be all they knew about. So, um, and the original cabbage comes from the Mediterranean almost certainly. So yeah, um, yeah that, that's fun. You can put all these different, get, get, go to the market, buy the different kinds of brassicas, uh, cook them, display them as a set and um, amaze your friends by the story. Really, they're all the same. That's great. I love that idea. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on the show. It's fun learning about, about this. Thank you. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. You can find this and all of our other episodes at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find the video version of this episode and others on the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel under the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. A big shout out of thanks to our producers from Co-Conspiracy Entertainment, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in each week. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.